With nearly 51,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, Brooklyn is one of the most impacted areas in the hardest-hit city in the United States. I'm George Bodarkey, and this is Cityscape. I recently talked with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams about a wide range of issues, from racial disparities in the age of coronavirus to how the city should look to shore up an economy in crisis. We spoke via Zoom. Borough President Adams, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you very much for having me. So how are you doing these days? Extremely busy. This is a new norm for all of us. And I believe that, you know, going through some of the other uh, crises that I experienced in law enforcement and as a senator and now borough president, it was really a dress rehearsal for this, no matter how traumatic those others were. I understand you've been sleeping in your office. Is that correct? 40 plus days. Uh, it was something that I saw when I was a lieutenant in the police department after 9-11, uh, I knew that it was easier to adjust and be ready from the place of your de deployment. And it's just turned out to be a very useful tool now. Now, how's that going for you? Where do you shower? <laughs> That's the number one question. Fortunate for me that this building was built with a shower and a kitchen uh, with a large fridge that I'm able to have my plant-based meals. So it's a real win. And I have a little exercise bike and a, a pull-up bar, so I'm able to get my exercise in as well. Are you still getting out there, though, in the community? Uh, every day. Every day we're out um, with a series of things um, from day one. Uh, I knew it was going to be important to be the supplier to the front line. Uh, oftentimes, we talk about uh, frontline employees but if you don't have a route of supplies, those frontline employees can't get the things they need to do their job. And so we played that role um, when the decision was made of that essential employees needed to be out. Uh, I'm, I am an essential employee. I was as a cop and I am now as a bar president. And I cannot send out my doctors, my school safety agents, and my transit employees out on the field of battle and not be out there with them. I know that one thing that you worked to do was to get personal protective equipment to folks living in NYCHA housing. That was so important. Uh, we started that about four or five weeks ago because I said from the beginning that this virus had to be fought on two fronts. One, intervention, and the second is prevention. And by intervention is those who have the virus, we must make sure they get adequate medical care. But if we didn't prevent people from getting the virus, we would have continued to feed uh, the virus in our hospital systems. And NYCHA, was, in my belief, was ground zero of the prevention effort. Many people have pre-existing conditions, including respiratory problems. And I knew that we needed to get face coverings to them right away and education because we were not communicating in a language that everyone understood. And I knew we had to do that. I know that you take issue with the term social distancing, right? Yes, I do. Uh, I think that we cannot sit um, at our dinner parties or inside our echo chambers and come up with terminologies that are not familiar with everyday New Yorkers, particularly in a place like New York City and Brooklyn. 47% of Brooklyn, I speak a language other than English at home. It's hard enough putting together terms for us to create these fancy terminologies. Uh, if you go to a person in a different community and start talking about social distancing, they, they have no clue what you're talking about. And I saw that at the beginning of this virus when I spoke to two young men in Canarsie 
that were playing basketball. I pulled my car over and said, listen, guy, you're supposed to be social distancing. They said, what the heck is that? And it made clear to me, let's use terms that everyday New Yorkers who are learning English, who don't know um, the conversation in echo chambers, let's use just real terms. Stand six feet apart from each other. That is easy to say. This is not an academic exercise. This is about saving lives. How have you been working to get the word out about keeping apart from each other and the need to wear face coverings? It's a combination. Each mask that we distribute is wrapped with instructions. Uh, it allows us to keep the mask in a sanitary and clean environment. And we, we when a person opens uh, the wrapping, they will see a list of simple instructions, washing your hands, stand six feet apart, uh, you know, of cover your face. We're giving people very real, simple instructions. Because imagine this for a moment. You, you lost your job. You're unsure where you're going to get your food or your rent. You may have a loved one that is in, in, impacted or died from COVID-19. Do you need more complications? We should be looking, how do I take something off your plate to allow you to deal with this? And so we use simple instructions. Uh, this weekend on Mother's Day, we drove around with a megaphone telling people happy Mother's Day, bring home a gift, don't bring home the virus. Mm -hmm. And we want to stay on the ground where people need to be engaged in a very real, real way. COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting people of color. You are among a coalition of local elected officials calling for a federal investigation into COVID-19 racial disparities. What are among the questions you want answered? We made a calculative and a bad decision of, at the start of this pandemic. We divided the city. We divided the city into essential employees and non-essential employees. We, to we told essential employees that we want you to shelter in place, we want you to social distance yourself, and if you go out, wear face coverings. We knew that was the best way to survive COVID-19. Yet with essential employees, by the nature of their jobs, we knew they couldn't shelter in place, we knew they couldn't social distance, and we did not give them face covering. If you look at just New York State, you can say, well, maybe that was just a bad action and a coincidence. We started looking across the country, and you know what we found? We found the same thing across the country. We found lack of testing in black and brown communities and poor communities. We found lack of access to PPEs, the overwhelming number of nurses and hospital professionals are black and brown. We found uh, the inability to give proper uh, food supplies to those who were seniors. There was a pattern that was too much of the same to say it was coincidental. We started speaking to colleagues across the country. They were saying the same problems we were having here. And we said that we need a thorough federal investigation to look into this to see if there were civil rights violations so we can institute real changes for now and in the future. I was going to say, not just for this moment, but going forward to stop the inequities, right? Without a doubt. Uh, we, if you just look at it, uh, we're not only talking about what happened on the state level or the city level across the country, but even the federal level. If you just use, for an example, at Downstate Hospital, which was really the center of the epicenter, uh, they were unable to get a machine called the Roach machine. 
this machine would have allowed a thousand tests a day. They were unable to get the machine, although they had the money and the vendor was ready to sell it to them. The federal government stopped the vendor from selling the machine to downstate. We want to know how many other hospitals in the inner cities of our country were prevented from getting this machine. Why is it important? If we would, would have identified people early that had COVID-19, they would not have gone home to their home, their families and infected their families. We could have isolated, contained them, allowed them to come out of the 14, 15 or 30 day cycle period and would not have expanded the, uh, the infection rate. And it was a big mistake we made on the federal level by not giving the resources on the ground and not allowing the PPEs to flow fr freely from China to come to the local cities and municipalities. Recent data, as you know, recent data from the NYPD showed that more than 80% of summonses for failing to keep six feet apart from each other were issued to people of color. What are your thoughts about that statistic and what needs to change there? Very troubling because keep in mind right now we are sheltering in place for the most part. So what we did and what we are doing is really a dress rehearsal for when we lift up the shelter in place order, when we remove it. So when we go from a million contacts with the New York City Police Department on civilians, according to their numbers, and move to uh, the 8 million people returning to carrying our business, now those numbers can go even higher. And so we need to correct the direction we're going in now to make sure that we're using a fairer method of reculturing people. The other number that's important, over 90% of the people who were arrested were people of color. So you cannot save a person's life by destroying his or her life. And we're calling for the police department to take a lighter touch, only deal with the extreme egregious cases and allow community-based organizations such as uh, anti-violence groups that's called Cure Violence Models, uh, Block Association, BIDS, uh, religious institutions. Let the community be part of this reculturing and not enforcement. This is not a crime that people are doing. This is a public health issue and public health issues should be treated with the proper level of touch. You have a goal of holding 100 dinners across the city. You're calling this effort the Breaking Bread Building Bonds Initiative. Of course, those dinners have now gone virtual, right? You have now since held at least one virtual dinner, correct? Yes, yes we have. Really excited about the project. It started over uh, the uh, last year, early last year, after we saw an increase in hate crimes where a large number of people were being assaulted, particularly of the Jewish race, and even those members of the LGBTQ community. And we noticed that although we are a diverse uh, city and borough, particularly here in Brooklyn, where 47% of the people speak a language other than English at home, we wanted to bring people into a social environment of using dinners and a meal to break the ice and start to learn from each other and we had dinners across the city where 10 people would sit down from different ethnic groups and cultural groups, no two the same, and they will sit and, and educate the other nine people around the table about their culture and their understanding. And now that COVID-19 has come, we have decided to move it to using Zoom or WebEx 
but the same theme, the same concept where people will have a meal and they will share the different parts of their culture, their experiences to really educate people how we are all the same and how do we build bridges together. And so important to keep that dialogue going. As we saw in recent statistics, the number of anti-Semitic cases through the roof over the last year. And anti-Chinese as well. Think about how many people have attacked Chinese residents uh, because of the terminology on the federal level that was used to identify this virus. This was not a Chinese virus. This was a virus. And you had people with ill hearts would assault and attack uh, different groups because of the uh, terms we use. And what's interesting here is when I started my NYCHA project of giving out masks, that project was sponsored by the Chinese residents of the borough of Brooklyn in the city. Although they were being assaulted, although their businesses were not being patronized, they gave us over uh, 50,000 masks to distribute throughout the city. 25,000 went to NYCHA residents. They still wanted to help the city and the country that they love and they adopted. So that's why these dinners are important so we can break down these stereotypes. As we all know, nursing homes have been very hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. How would you say they're faring now in Brooklyn? What are your concerns about nursing homes? We issue the large number of PPEs uh, to our uh, nursing homes. Uh, and that goes back to the original um, deployment of addressing this, uh, this virus and this pandemic is that we were supposed to have gone to those areas where you will have the greatest level of death. We came into this with a level of knowledge. The knowledge was if you had pre-existing conditions, a fancy term for diabetes, heart disease, respiratory issues, if you are over 60, uh, you were more likely to have a more devastating impact. So we should have deployed our resources to those areas where that population existed. No place personified that more than our nursing homes. Uh, it, it was unbelievable that we didn't have an adequate plan to address our nursing homes, bring all of our nursing home uh, owners together and implement a real plan to protect that vulnerable population. It was troubling to find out that we were telling nursing homes they had to keep those who were infected on their site and not allow them to go to hospitals. That was a bad decision. We seem to have tried to correct the errors. We're giving personal protection. We're doing testing. We're allowing them to be admitted to hospitals. And so let's continue to make sure that they get the support that they need and they deserve so we can protect this vulnerable population. Fortunately, we're seeing the death toll from COVID-19 overall go down. But in the last couple of months, funeral homes were overwhelmed. A few weeks back, dozens of bodies were discovered in a U-Haul truck outside a funeral home in the Flatland section of Brooklyn. What needs to be done to ensure those who pass away are treated in a dignified manner and we don't see things like that happening again? It was ironic, uh, a few days before the discovery of bodies inside of the trailer and the U-Haul truck, uh, I was meeting with funeral home directors who called me and told me that Eric were having a backup problem. And on that Sunday before that discovery, I held a press conference in front of the Office of Chief Medical Examiner Office calling for several things to be implemented. And I was happy uh, that the Chief Medical Examiner's Office 
embraced many of the things that I called for. What was happening is that we were having a decrease in the number of burials and we were having, that was on the back end, the, 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 the last stage, but on the first stage, we were having morgues that were closing in conflict to the hours of funeral directors. We were having a mad rush to get bodies out of morgues so that they was becoming a backup inside the, the funeral parlors. We were having crematoriums not uh, cremating bodies at a rate. So it, what happened with the discovery of those bodies, I believe we had trucks like that all over our city. It just so happened that this one truck was discovered by residents because of the leakage of some form of fluid. But we put funeral directors in a bad situation situation that we had to uh, correct. And so what we did, the Office of Chief Medical Examiner changed their hours to work later until 10.30 p.m., which is so important. They also created at the 39th Street Pier a place where they could hold bodies so families were no longer rushed in a two-week period. They were allowed to sit there until they could make the necessary arrangements and come up with the finances to bury their loved ones. They took the pressure off the entire system and they also get, gave personal protection equipment to cemeteries and funeral parlors. So we readjusted the entire system and now we're examining just the emotional part of the bereavement and we corrected the things that was really backing up the entire system. A lot of lessons being learned all across this pandemic, huh? Borough President, so much that we're learning. And fortunately, it sounds like we're fixing for the future. Yes, so, so true. And, and there's something you said that's very powerful, lessons being learned. A, a crisis does not create the dysfunctional response to the things. A crisis amplifies the dysfunctionality that exists. And so what we are seeing in our cities across America is that our systems are dysfunctional and all the crises did was amplify the dysfunctionality of it. It's dysfunctional to feed people food that we know cause chronic diseases. It's dysfunctional uh, not to have enough personal protection and equipment when all scientists were telling us we were going to be hit with pandemics in our cities. It's dysfunctional to not be able to manage assets, equitably dis distribute them, and here's the real term, in real time. We need to now reshape our cities to build and use technology to run our cities in real time. I've said this more than once, and I will continue to amplify this virus just amplified the dysfunctionalities of our cities across America. Hunger, of course, is a big issue. It has been a big issue long before this pandemic, but now we're seeing more and more people needing emergency food assistance because they are out of work. What needs to be done to help combat this problem going forward to battle this issue of hunger, not just in the short term, but in the long term? We have to read redefine the term hunger. Hunger is not merely caloric consumption. We have focused the conversation around hunger is as long as I give you a full butt belly, you can fill someone's belly with a bunch of Mars bars. You know, that's not satisfying what the body needs. The body must have, must have uh, uh, nutrition that allows it to build strong immune systems to fight off 
viruses and diseases. We are now using our tax dollars to just handle caloric consumption. Some of the food that we've been feeding people is actually aggravating pre-existing conditions. I know it so well with my reversal of diabetes, losing my sight, nerve damage, having type two diabetes. Once I switched into a healthy diet, I was able to reverse my vision loss in three weeks and my diabetes in three months. I was at the late stages of diabetes. So if we would have had a plan of using this opportunity of feeding people, of introducing them to healthy food, we would have actually started the process of building immune systems. I believe we would have saved some of the hospitalization rates and also put people on the track of really start being healthy and not destroying their bodies. What about people who are struggling to pay their rent at this moment? I know that evictions are on pause for the time being through late August, but what needs to happen there to make sure people continue to have a roof over their heads and once this pause is lifted, they're not evicted, you know, because they don't have the money to pay. Well, well said, and I, I'm a small property owner and I have allowed my tenants to also participate long before any announcement was made to participate in holding off, uh, deal with your emergency needs now, uh, before you even think about paying the rent. I'm allowed to do that and I'm able to do that, but that's not the story for everyone. So we must be careful when we start engaging in conversation of no, no rent being paid because many of the property owners are small property owners. They depend on rent to pay their mortgage and other utility bills. So whatever we do must be done in unison with protecting people because if you start losing small property owners, the large property owners will go in, purchase these properties, increase the rent, and then you will aggravate the entire gentrification argument and displace innocent people. So we must match with any of uh, a uh, rent excusal, should be matched with a mortgage excuse, excusal and utility bills as well as water bills. If not, you're gonna put a lot of small mom and pop um, property owners that are only one of two, four families, or even you could own a eight family that you struggle to earn. If you lose that rent, you are in a terrible situation. The federal government must step in and absorb the rent of people during this period. And then we must be creative. Uh, the governor agreed with a proposal we put out over a couple of weeks ago to allow people to take their rent security and use it to infuse it in, back into our economy and use either uh, rent security insurance, which is extremely cheap, or to pay it at another time. But this allows us to put money in our society and really help us over these next four months. Speaking of mom and pop, what do you see as the future of small business in New York City? So many are struggling. How can the city help them survive this crisis? Real, really painful and difficult challenge. Uh, we're getting ready to release a bill was just passed, just coming out of the of the Congress of dealing with the next round of, of stimulus money. We need to focus on small businesses. We didn't do that. In the last rounds of stimulus, uh, the goal is to focus on small businesses. And then the federal government needs to look uh, based on regions. The needs of New York is different from the needs of other parts of the country. Here in New York, small businesses are really impacted uh, by rent. 
uh, we need to absorb, if we can absorb the rent, um, the leasing space for our retailers, it would really give them the breathing room that they need. Uh, we need to also uh, put money into our CDFI, some of the, the small lending institutions that are lending uh, on the ground. The, the, it's unfortunate, but it is predicted here in Brooklyn, we may lose anywhere from 30 to 40% of our small businesses. This is devastated uh, to us, but we must become creative and see what are some of the needs that are going to, uh, we must supply after COVID-19 and our stay-at-home order is lifted. We need to make masks, hospital gowns, uh, technology, uh, all of these things. We need to look at our small businesses to be the producers of these items, of uh, food services. We need to now look at um, how do we use rooftop gardens and, and look at urban farming, uh, solar pow power, wind power. Um, how do we rebuild the city, uh, you know, rebuilding our roads and our bridges, using the stimulus to buy the screws, the, uh, the cement from small businesses. So there's an opportunity uh, to ensure that we include our small businesses and part of the economic recovery. How can we shore up the mass transit system? The subways are in crisis. Ridership is off, what, 90, 95%. What can be done to help the city's mass transit system going forward? So important, that, you know, the, the, much of the mass transit conversation comes out of the governor's office, uh, the decrease in ridership. Again, we have to look towards Washington, D.C. for the necessary uh, economics to fill that gap. Uh, it was a health crisis uh, to allow people to continue to ride the system, closing down the system uh, during the uh, late um, uh, overnight hours was important. It was smart. Uh, but we still depend greatly on our transportation system. And I think this is really a space uh, to start engaging on how do we make our subway system uh, free or more affordable. We, we have the reduced fare metro card now. Uh, I think we need to go deeper into that when you look at the cost of transportation. You may want to put a hole on the 2nd Avenue subway and use that money to engage in a conversation about making our system uh, free, and if not free completely, uh, then a greater number of New Yorkers are being able to have a reduced fare. Uh, the transportation cost is, is really a major impact on a great deal of New Yorkers, and now is an opportunity to re-examine how we use our transportation system. New York City itself is facing a very large fiscal crisis as a result of this pandemic. The city's on track to lose billions of dollars in revenue. What should the city be doing to shore up its budget going forward? What about raising taxes? What should happen? And, th and that's a great question. And I think we are, we're going to have to bring into the room all of our great economists uh, to deal with this. And historically, uh, going back to 2001 after 9-11, uh, when Mayor Bloomberg came into office, we had about a $4.8 billion budget deficit. We, <clears throat> we went to the real estate industry and we raise uh, taxes on that industry, not only the large property owners, but also the small property owners. And then in 2008, when we had the major financial collapse, we went to the real estate industry again and raised taxes. Uh, I don't think we could only raise taxes in this situation. Uh, we need to find uh, creative ways of revenue generations. Number one, uh, look at those areas, I believe, that have benefited uh, from 
of this crisis, looking at some of our tech industries, uh, looking at how do we examine ways of increasing uh, and ensuring that they're paying their fair share, looking at last mile legislation for those like Amazon that are using our roads to deliver packages on the last mile, but not really paying anything additional in taxes. And then we need to examine how do we run our city more efficiently. Well, Borough President Adams, so much to talk about. We can go on with many more issues. Anything else you would like to add before we go? Uh, uh, just that uh, I recall clearly uh, September 11th. I recall how traumatic it was. Uh, but as I say, September 12th, something amazing happened. The country watched us and we got up. Teachers taught, builders built, uh, retailers opened their stores and sold their goods. And because of our spirit, the rest of the country realized that we would be fine. And once again, uh, we are at the epicenter of a crisis. This is not terrorism, but it's still terror. And the country is watching us. And in the fashion that we've always shown, we will show as New Yorkers, we will stand up and lead the country forward. We're going to be fine, but let's make sure as we evolve out of this pandemic, that we all evolve as one city and we all are able to regain the rightful place of benefiting from the prosperity of a great place like New York. So I thank the people of this city for coming together to say we will survive. Borough President Adams, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Eric Adams is the Brooklyn Borough President and a 2021 mayoral hopeful. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>